Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Tortoise. Hello and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm Rachel Wolf. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. And I'm John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. Together we try to make sense of what's going on by looking at the numbers and the trends that they describe. Now this week we're going to spend most of our time talking about remembrance, the armed forces and then uh, defence spending. Uh, the last weekend, of course, was Remembrance Sunday. Saturday was Armistice Day. And there was a certain amount of discussion uh, in advance of that weekend about what it all meant, etc. So we thought we'd visit the opportunity time to visit the subject. That said, before we do so, we thought we should touch on one of the other news stories of the week. Because, Rachel, I think you've been doing some digging about prime ministers who become foreign secretaries. And there's a perhaps rather unexpected similarity across the cases. There are uh, two others other than David Cameron, uh, former prime ministers who then came back and became foreign secretary. Arthur Balfour, who was prime minister from 1902 to 1905, and then foreign secretary just over a decade later, from 1916 to 1919. And obviously there have been much discussion of the historical parallels, given that Arthur Balfour put his name to the Balfour Declaration, which declared the intent to have a Jewish homeland. Uh, where Israel now is. And Alec Douglas Hume, who was Prime Minister from 1963 to four and Foreign Secretary from 1970 to 74. I have to confess, I, I thought that he was called Alec Douglas Hume. So I've learned something in this podcast, at least. But the parallel that John asked and we checked is that all three of these people went to Eton. They didn't all go to Oxford. Balfour bucked the trend by going to Cambridge instead. Um, but certainly the image of the foreign secretary as an urbane, public school educated, Eton educated uh, man striding around the world has not changed enormously in the last century. Perhaps the sense of entitlement of this, uh, within which is Etonians uh, are encouraged to have or at least the sense of confidence in their own abilities is perhaps reflecting this. Of course, the cases are not exactly the same. Actually, Sir Alec Douglas, who had been Foreign Secretary before he became Prime Minister, and in fact, he was Shadow Foreign Secretary between 1966 and 1970. So to that extent, at least, this wasn't a case, unlike Lord Cameron uh, this week, of him suddenly going into this role, having been entirely out of politics. Uh, Arthur Balfour, of course, uh, in his case, he was brought in as part of the coalition. Initially, it was formed under uh, Asquith in 1915, at which point he was actually Lord of the Admiralty. And then in 1916, when Lord George took over as Prime Minister, but of course he's a, a Liberal, um, uh, Balfour then became Foreign Secretary. So the Cameron is, as it were, the first person to be brought straight 
into the job from doing absolutely nothing at all um, uh, immediately beforehand. But of course, I guess perhaps some of our listeners are asking, Rachel, well, does this all mean that there is still hope for a return for Boris Johnson, Eton and Oxford? Well, we discussed this a little bit yesterday, didn't we, John? You asked me whether I felt that the um, entitlement of David Cameron and Boris Johnson were identical. Uh, And I don't think they are entirely. Uh, And it explains why, actually, I think one is much easier to put in place in foreign secretary uh, under a serving prime minister than the other. In that David Cameron, who, by the way, I work with and found uh, a very pleasant person to work uh, for, not work with, work for, um, is is of the group of people who broadly think that life is better when they are in charge. Uh, Boris thinks that by will and ability alone, he can wrestle power away. And, and the image of Boris being a biddable foreign secretary taking collective responsibility to any prime minister, let alone the man who defenestrated him, um, is hard, I think, uh, to put in your mind's eye. Whereas I think David Cameron will. I think he will take collective responsibility. Um, He will try and use the relationships that he built as prime minister uh, to the service of the realm. Um, That that may be entitlement, but I think it will be easier to manage. Okay. All right. Um, Well, doubtless our listeners will form their own judgment in the fullness of time as to how good a job Lord Cameron does or doesn't do. But anyway, we should return... You always sound so sceptical, John. No, no, not at all. Not, not at a all. fan. Not, no, not, <laughs> not, not, not at all. Um, but I think, you know, we should now move on to our, to our, our, our principal subject, which, of course, is, is, is a serious one. Um, so our first number of the week um, comes from a poll that YouGov did uh, back in November 2019. It was around the time of remembrance then. And it ascertained that 97, I repeat this, 97% of people said in that poll that at some point in their lives, they had previously worn a red poppy. Um, and indeed, you know, if you look at you guys' website, they will say that of all the national events and occasions, etc., remembrance uh, is the one that people have most regard for. So this is certainly something that, a lot of people have been involved in at least at some point in their lives. But of course, I guess the question is, Rachel, how much are they getting involved these days? I think you said in the same uh, data, John, that only about half of people are say that they wore one this year. And certainly kind of visibly, it's interesting, when you were going about London the last few weeks before Remembrance, you didn't see a uh, huge number of poppies on display. And, and as you said, that that's probably partly because the people who are wearing them tend to be older, perhaps less likely to live in London. And we are now at the point where very few people remain who fought in either of the world wars. There's no one who fought in World War One. There are very few people left who fought in World War Two. We've been in a process over the last 80 years of lowering defence spending of reducing the size of our armed forces. And from the last census, I think we said that um, 4% of people uh, in this country have served in the armed forces at some point, but 35% of those people are over 80 and 59% of them are over 65. Whether or not the observance of, of remembrance has significantly gone down over time at all, indeed increased, I mean, certainly it's not something that is immediately obviously possible to do in terms of putting strings of uh, a polling data together, which in a sense perhaps may tell you that 
Um, you know, the fact that pollsters until recently at least have not bothered very much to address the question perhaps suggests that until recently there wasn't thought to be much question mark. But um, sure, as compared with the virtually all of us who've worn a red poppy at some time, um, YouGov 2019, this was done just after Remembrance, 43% said they did something. Ipsos in a poll done just before last weekend, 50% said that they thought they would wear a poppy and 43% said they would observe the two-minute silence. So probably, uh, and YouGov, but in advance of polling day, had about 37% of people who by that stage were already wearing a poppy. So the truth probably is that although virtually all of us have probably done it at some point in our lives, probably the observation of remembrance is something that is something that actively at the moment may be around a half of us do, though of course many more people may still respect uh, the importance of the occasion. But certainly the fact that you said you found smaller, fewer people wearing poppies in London, well, you know, London is a city of younger people, and all of the polling that's been done this year has found, or indeed in early years, has found that younger people are less likely to say they did something. So if you go back to that YouGov poll of 2019, only 30% of 18 to 24-year-olds said they'd done something, 53% of 65-pluses. So you can see there are some age differences. And obviously, as ever, when we see age differences, it raises the question, well, is this an indication of the fact that as older people um, leave uh, this world, observance of remembrance will go down, or is this a life cycle effect? And that, to be honest, given the way of the world as today's younger generations get exposed to the reality of war, um, they then also begin to feel that perhaps remembering uh, uh, what happens in war, et cetera, et cetera, both the service of those who participate and those who lose their lives is perhaps more important than perhaps they realise when they're younger. And the truth is, we won't know the answer to that question uh, for quite a while. But certainly, um, you know, there are some there are some differences there. And John, I mean, you you grew up in the fifties and sixties, I think. I hope I'm not misnaming your age. You are absolutely spot on, Rachel. Spot on. And and so presumably then a huge proportion of the men would have served um, as you were growing up. A huge proportion of the women would have done some kind of war effort. And therefore, Remembrance Sunday or would have been a, a deeply personal experience for them. Now, now, of course, the way in which people feel about war of those who've been involved, of course, you know, there's no united view about this. Some of them feel uh, that, um, you know, they feel proud, felt proud of their service, were indeed willing to take place in the various marches that still take place um, uh, to recognise Remembrance Days. Others perhaps were more felt the pity of war, uh, didn't necessarily want to get involved. And the truth is that, you know, our understanding of what Remembrance means is quite diverse. And, you know, and that's there in some of the polling. I mean, when in... When Armistice Day started in 1919, and we'll come back to some of this in a moment, um, it was principally there to act as a source of comfort and recognition to the loss that many people have suffered. Of course, the First World War, you know, an awful lot of young men lost their lives. Many a family was afflicted by that kind of loss. 
The story you told me, which I, I didn't know and I thought was interesting given the huge controversy over last weekend's protests, um, was that there was another protest on Armistice Weekend in the 20s by largely veterans of the First World War who were deeply angry that they had not received the support from the government that they thought was reasonable, which I would argue is is a rather different case from last weekend, but it it is a very interesting one. Yeah, it it is an interesting one. Of course, Lloyd George, um, the then Prime Minister, uh, had promised a land fit for heroes to live in, um, but actually quite a lot of them struggled to find a job. And, you know, the, the early 1920s was uh, you know, not as troubled as the 1930s, but it was relatively economically troubled, and there's quite a level of high level of unemployment. So there were, in 1922, on Armstead's Day, there was a march towards the Cenotaph by those who were unemployed, and those marchers, rather than wearing poppies or their medals, wore pawn tickets, i.e. The, a symbol of family jewellery or whatever that they had had to pawn at the pawn shop because of their poverty. So now there is a little bit of past history here, um, albeit fairly remote, of people actually also having a march, which you know could be perhaps regarded as cocking a little bit of a snook at the, the national commemoration uh, that had already begun to take place on Armistice Day. So I know as often, history perhaps is a bit more complicated than some of the mythology uh, that we uh, generate uh, more, uh, we generate more recently. And that, I mean, that's true of all countries, right? We have these, uh, these themes, these commemorations, these days, which always when you delve into history are somewhat more complex than the occasion we Mark, but the 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 sort of question is, what does that occasion mean to people? Sure. And I guess the the thing I find most interesting about the moment we're in now is we really are at the very very uh, dying days of memory of the two world wars, and we've had these generations of relative peace. Yes, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan were important events uh, in terms of the direct experience of the people in this country. They were tiny compared with the First and Second World War. And as those people kind of pass out of living memory, we now do feel like we're at a hinge point, to your point earlier, uh, where maybe the experience of war directly is going to now increase. And obviously, the presence of wars in other countries have made a big difference to how people felt about Remembrance Weekend. But we, we currently have this huge age gap, as we do in lots of other things, in experience, but also sentiment. So 59% of those of, of the current veterans in this country are over 65. Over a third of them are over 80. Just 4% of um, the country have served in the armed forces at some point. This comes from this comes from the census. Yes, is that right? The 2021 census, the most recent data. The most recent data. We don't actually know what it is in the past because they haven't consistently asked this question. We don't have a good tracker of it. That's true. Though, though, though interesting, interestingly, British Social Attitudes did ask a question of a representative sample back in 2011. So that's, that, that is uh, 10 years previously. Um, that had 8% of people in response to that sample survey saying they'd involved the armed forces. But again, it was overwhelmingly those in the 65 plus group. So I think that, that reinforces your point that almost undoubtedly uh, well, the proportion of people with experience in the armed forces is 
going down. Our armed forces are now, you know, much smaller than they once were. Our population's grown. And what we do know is that in America, it, it moved from about 45% of men had military experience in 1960 down to about 9% today. This is the point that we keep coming back to, that there, there is not a huge proportion of the population who have direct experience of war or the armed forces anymore. Remember, it's Sunday for now, still has high, high, high support. Half of people are wearing a poppy. But... The attachment to this is very, very different than it was, first of all, when Remembrance uh, was created and in the decades since. And that is also reflected, and I think this is our last set of numbers, in what has actually happened to defence spending. Because in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War um, in the 50s, defence spending was about 70% of UK GDP. It's now just over 2%, so just over the supposed NATO threshold, although most NATO countries don't meet that threshold. So we've seen a decline in defence expenditure over time. Of course, in the actual World War, uh, it was much higher, 40% of GDP, and it was only in 2006 that we paid off our last bit of debt from World War II, from the enormous expenditure that it caused us and and bankrupted um, Britain. But in the last few decades, for all the kind of rhetorical support for the armed forces and for defence, and it's been a very big part of the rhetoric of the Conservative Party consistently, um, we actually don't spend very much. And and interestingly, uh, because of the uh, tensions around the world, because of Ukraine particularly, we now look to be overtaken by Germany in NATO expenditure. Germany's been way below us for a very long time as they radically ramp up their expenditure for obvious reasons. And we are actually uh, quite unusual, although we're a relatively high spender internationally, we're quite unusual in not having raised our spending as a percentage of GDP on defence very much in the last decade. So if you look at all the different NATO members, most of them are starting at a lower base, other than the US, which is at a much higher base and actually has also decreased spending a little bit, now ramping up again. Um, but they've all started to increase spending. And and of all the vast pressures on the UK state, and we'll talk about them on different episodes, health, welfare, aging populations, this is another. There is a lot of pressure to increase defence spending as conflict rears its head uh, across the globe. But it's OK. So let's first of all, just to clarify, um, this decline in defence spending has occurred amongst during the tenure of both Conservative and Labour governments, NESPA, yeah? It's been a very consistent linear trend, basically from the 1950s downwards. And presumably also um, the fall of the Iron Curtain is a not inconsiderable uh, factor here that in the wake of that in 1989, uh, the pressure... The thought, the seeming pressure to spend money on defence uh, fell away because we were hoping at that stage that this meant that the tension between the West and Russia would gradually humiliate us. Russia gradually shifted into a more democratic world. Of course, a, a hope and aspiration that has long since disappeared. But uh, certainly, defence spending fell quite fell quite markedly during the uh, late eighties and nineteen nineties as the Iron Curtain 
it going to fall. Yes, although it's quite interesting when you look at the longer term trend, quite how linear it is. There isn't a sort of massive drop off that's a complete disruption from the trend in the early 1990s. Instead, you just get a consistent drop across countries. It's true in the United States. It's true um, across the NATO things. I mean, Russian expenditure, to the extent that we consider it reliable, is a is a fascinating uh, pattern, which has rocketed up and down, is obviously now increased very, very substantially. The um, World in Data puts it at over, uh, coming up to about 6% of their GDP now is spent on defence and, and who knows how much it's increased in the last year. Yeah, yeah, sure. And that's roughly where, where, where we were um, about uh, 50 years ago. Of course, you know, the truth is that um, all democratic governments in the West have been under pressure to provide uh, government spending on lots of other things. Yeah, I, after the Second World War, as a society, we took on responsibility for health service. We expanded our welfare system. Uh, so government had lots of other things to do and long since moved away from defence being, as it were, uh, and law and order being the principal and sole responsibility of government. I mean, the other thing we, we can look at, of course, is why well, we can ask, well, where, where does public opinion start to all of this? And it, this was one of the things that British social attitudes, when we... Uh, in the report that you and I talked about back in September, we were revisiting some of the long-term trends um, and looking at attitudes towards defence spending. And they have changed very, very considerably. So um, if we go back to the end of the 1980s, um, and indeed in the immediate wake of the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1990, only 8% of people said we should increase defence spending. 48% said we should spend less. Now, with defence spending an awful lot lower, but arguably with the world a much less safe place, 42% think we should spend more on defence and only 18% less. And that's been, that was already, the figure had already increased quite substantially back in the middle noughties, but now it is markedly higher. Now, that said, what is also true, however, is if you give people a list of things upon which they might ask them to spend more money. It's not money. ranking against hospitals. Exactly. <laughs> and actually, one of the things that I found sort of interesting as researching this, and it's a sort of symbol of how the state has changed, is um, in the sort of 1880s, 1890s, we, we spent a little bit less, but sort of roughly comparable as a percentage of GDP on defence as we do now. We were a much poorer country. We were not spending a huge percentage of our GDP on defence. But our percentage expenditure on health was basically non-existent. It's put at 0.13% compared to about 12% today. So what's happened is that the state has expanded massively. The size of the amount that's gone on defence expenditure hasn't increased, but the burden on everything else has gone up enormously. Indeed. And there are the pressures that are created by a democratic society. Um, We should also say, I mean, of course, you, you referred to earlier about how conservative Conservatives at least rhetorically talk a great deal about defence expenditure. They don't necessarily always follow through in action. I mean, there is a bit of a party divide here. I mean, it's true on a lot of the subjects we've been talking about uh, uh, today. Um, but on this, on this specifically, um, 77% of people who support the Conservatives say we should have more spending. For Labour, it's 55%. But even amongst Labour supporters, uh, over a half, at least simply asked to talk about defence, say it should matter more. Of course, the, the other th- thing which is often a subject of controversy, it became a subject of controversy when Jeremy Corbyn became a leader, is that one particular aspect of defence expenditure 
which is uh, Britain's independent nuclear deterrent and uh, whether we should be adopting a multilateral or a unilateral stance. Um, again, British social attitudes revisited some of the, these issues in its most recent survey. Um, we are still inclined to feel that uh, having our own nuclear weapons makes Britain a safer place to live. 65% expressed that view uh, in our most recent survey. It was 60% back in 1983 when there was a whole controversy about uh, the placement of American cruise missiles on UK soil, although it had fallen away to about uh, 45% uh, in 1994. Uh, but again, it's something where now, there is something of, well, there is a clear divide between Conservative Labour supporters. 67% um, of uh, Conservative supporters think that uh, nuclear weapons are, are safer as a result. Uh, Labour, it's rather less, although even amongst Labour, rather more people think it makes us safer than less safe. But um, now, that's one particular aspect that's caused controversy at various points in time. At the moment, it looks as though we're more or less back uh, to where we were on the issue. As you said, there is some party divide when I last looked about 11% of Conservative MPs have some background in the armed forces. It's barely countable for Labour uh, MPs. I think they put it at 2%. So there is more of a both support among Conservative voters, but also kind of background among Conservative MPs. Nevertheless, I think the broad picture that we're describing, which is a general decline in importance, a general decline in connection, but feeling like we are at a turning point right now where this becomes more of an expenditure pressure with more public support is is consistent across the parties. What is interesting is whether it becomes consistent across age groups. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think we should say you're right. Fewer Labour MPs may be involved in the forces, but actually, um, and this we can pick up from the British Society Survey I referred to earlier, um, Labour supporters are almost as likely to have had some involvement in uh, the defence as Conservative supporters. So that's not necessarily a divide amongst the left. One other thing perhaps we should also say, however, about the armed forces before we conclude, Rachel, um, is again, one of the things the British Social Attitudes did ask about, um, again, back in 2011, which again, when the role of the armed forces in Iraq and Afghanistan was a bit controversial. Well, you know, that, that, you know did they respect the armed forces? How does this compare with respect for other professions. And the truth is, 75% of people have said at that point they had a great deal of respect for the armed forces. 82% uh, of Conservative supporters, 73% of Labour supporters. The level of respect for the armed forces was higher even than for doctors. So uh, to that extent, at least, they clearly are highly regarded as a profession. A little bit less so, amongst university graduates and amongst the rest of the population, a little bit less amongst 18 to 34-year-olds, but you know, not that much. Um, but also, perhaps also important to note is that um, in that same survey, again, asked at the time of controversy, 94% um, of people, 94% of people said that they supported those soldiers and felt that those soldiers who'd been involved in Iraq and Afghanistan should be supported, uh, irrespective of what they felt about the, uh, the the importance and the value of those particular armed interventions. So um, I see to where people do draw a distinction between regard for our armed forces and some of the decisions that our politicians may make about how uh, to deploy them. So um, to that extent, at least, they are outside whatever controversy and debates 
are going on about uh, our uh, defence deployment. And presumably the two are somewhat connected in that some of the opposition, not all, but some of the opposition to Iraq and Afghanistan was related to feeling that our soldiers were being killed for an unsuitable end. It sure. is partly because we value their lives that we didn't that, that there was a radically declining level of support as casualties mounted. Sure. I mean, of course, um, uh, well, and of course, not only, not only is the casualty mounted, but also as we discovered that the, the um, immediate causes bed, i.e. Absolutely. Uh, that, that Iraq had um, weapons, weapons of mass destruction proved to be proved to be incorrect. Yes. I mean, in a sense, I guess uh, for many people, perhaps uh, people dying in uh, for a cause or in circumstances where going to war seems to be necessary and justified is different from uh, a situation where perhaps the politicians have made a mistake. But as I was saying, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that people feel any differently about the soldiers in question uh, and airmen and, and, and Navy personnel who are involved in, in, uh, in any uh, armed conflict. So where did we end up? I think what we said was uh, there's still actually very high support for remembrance. Yes. Although people's reasons for remembrance are change, are different between each other and have changed over time. We are nevertheless in a society where a very small proportion of people have direct experience of war. And Correct. we are in a society where our support for defence monetarily has gone down very, very significantly. Um and yet we feel like we are plausibly in a turning point. Expenditure is increasing in lots of countries worldwide. We don't know the future. We don't know how many wars are going to occur. There is perhaps a feeling among the public that perhaps we do need to spend a bit more. We need to spend a bit more. Um, not as much as we need to spend on A&E, but that this uh, is a somewhat higher priority than it was. And, and our support for the armed forces remains high. That's it from Trendy for this week. I'm Rachel Wolf. Do remember you can email us with any thoughts or questions at trendy at tortoisemedia.com. And I'm John Curtis. Thanks for listening. New episodes are published every Thursday. Do rate and review us. It really helps people find us. And follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.